Welcome to the Press On Podcast. Expect to be inspired, challenged, and strengthened. In this episode, we'll hear from Mark Strachan on the character of God. I came across this quote from Richard Dawkins's book, The God Delusion. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomanical, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. This quote got me wondering about Dawkins' characterization of God. From a superficial reading of the Old Testament, his observations appear to have some merit. For example, the incident in Numbers 31, where God asked the Israelites to kill all the Midianite men, women, and boys, but they could keep the girls who had not slept with the man, spoils of war. Today, there would be a huge international outcry if the actions listed in Numbers 31 when acted by one country on another. This is unfortunately not the only act of violence in the Old Testament, and it is repeated in the Israelites' conquest of Canaan. God also commands acts of violence against his own people, such as when Moses came down from Mount Sinai and the Israelites had fallen into idolatry. We're told in Exodus 32 that Moses told the Levites that God had commanded them to go through the Israelite camp and kill their brother, friend, and neighbor. Many of God's commandments are rather violent. The stoning of people who have committed certain sinful acts, an eye for an eye, if a man beats his slave and the slave does not die, the owner is not to be punished since the slave is his property, and many other such examples. For me, this is not the character of God that he revealed to us through his beloved son. But how do I dismiss God's characterization in the Old Testament when we're told in 2 Timothy 3 that the Bible is divinely inspired. I'm also not sure what relationship I should have with a God who is a bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser and genocidal God, or even if I want to have a relationship with him. This dichotomy between the character of God as revealed in the Old Testament and the character of God as revealed through his Son has created cognitive dissonance, which has been gnawing at me for a long time. So how do I reconcile this issue? Can I reconcile this issue? Is it possible that Jesus only reflected one part of God's character, not all of it, not revealing those parts of God's character which appear to be violent, genocidal, and unjust? We're told in Hebrews, in the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Hebrews 1 verses 1 through 3. Or as the New Living Translation puts it, Jesus is the very character of God. If Jesus is the exact representation of God or the very character of God, it's difficult to think that he only reflected a part of God's character. Also in John, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you would know who my Father is. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. John 14, verses 6 and 7. 
Again, Jesus is reiterating that he is the very character of God and that if we have seen Jesus, we have seen God. What is more, the word truth in verse 6 is the Greek word aletheia, which means unconcealed, revealed, or literally the state of not being hidden. Jesus is telling us that he is the revealed or unconcealed character of God, which would imply that the character of God was not fully revealed through the Old Testament prophets. Paul adds to this in Colossians 2, where he says that in Christ lie hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, and that in Christ lives the fullness of God in a human body. So not only do we see the fullness of God in Jesus, in Jesus all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge can be found. I think it can be safe to say from these verses that Christ revealed the whole character of God and that in Christ we can find all knowledge and wisdom. If Jesus reflected the whole character of God, what did Jesus have to say about enemies, killing and violence in general? In Matthew 5 verse 7 he says, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. In Matthew 5 verse 9. And then, with a reference to Old Testament law, Jesus says, You've heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. If you're sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. You've heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Matthew 5 verses 38 through 44. In Luke 9, we are told of the story when the Samaritans did not welcome Jesus when he was on the way to Jerusalem. His disciples, James and John, recommended to Jesus that they call down fire from heaven to burn up the Samaritans. James and John knew their scriptures well, and they knew that Elisha had done this to two groups of 50 soldiers. So what they were suggesting was not without precedent. However, Jesus rebuked the two disciples in fact, the, word, the Greek word for rebuke can also be translated to censure severely. Jesus was clearly not happy with his disciples' suggestion, even though they thought they had scriptural precedence for it. It is without a doubt that Jesus preached peace, to love our enemies, to show mercy, and that this same message is preached throughout the Gospels. This, however, creates a dilemma. If the whole character of God is shown in Christ, how do I deal with the portrait of God in the Old Testament which are not revealed in Christ? I cannot dismiss them as the whole scripture is inspired by God. And God could not have changed as we're told in scripture that God does not change. This raises several questions. Is some or all of scripture not inspired? Is Jesus not what the New Testament makes him out to be? Is the Bible just a history book describing the exploits of nations and individuals? I don't want to believe in the God of Dawkins, as I have felt the loving and gracious hand of God in my life many times. I know the joy of answered prayer, and in God's graciousness, he has softened the consequences of my own sins, and I yearn to be as Jesus was 
and is. So there must be another answer to this dilemma. I decided to start with a literature review of the topic. I excluded all the explanations which state that it's God's right to judge the world and use violence as part of his divine judgment, as this does not match the character of Christ. All the other arguments to justify the apparent violent nature of God could be broken down into three broad categories. The first is that, as the Bible was written by humans, their writings were fashioned after their own cultural beliefs. The second is that these stories were written down long after their time to inspire others to courage and absolute commitment to God. And the third is that this extreme language in the biblical text, such as kill every living thing, is not intended literally, but merely hyperbole to describe definitive victory. There is some archaeological evidence to support the fact that the biblical texts reflect the writer's cultural beliefs, and that some of the texts may have been hyperbole to describe conclusive victories. However, these explanations do not adequately address the issue of God's apparent violent nature in the Old Testament. My research into the cultural beliefs of the ancient Near East drew me to the passage in Matthew where Jesus says, Moses permitted divorce only as a concession to your hard hearts, but it was not what God had originally intended, Matthew 18 verse 8. By implication, Moses allowed divorce to take place because of the hardness of the people's hearts, even though this was never the intention of God who hates divorce. We're also told that marriage is a metaphor of the relationship between Christ and the church, where there is clearly no place for polygamy and divorce. However, the Old Testament law permitted both divorce and polygamy, and God seems to concede to both, even though this was never his intention from the beginning. God has allowed an adjustment of his principles to cater for the culture of the time, where multiple wives and divorce were common cultural elements in the ancient Near East. Another concession that God appears to have made to cater for the culture of the day was animal sacrifices. I can find at least 10 references in the Old Testament that clearly state that God does not want sacrifices, but what he does want is for his people to do what is right, to love mercy and to walk humbly with them. Twice when arguing with the Pharisees, Jesus told them to learn what I desire mercy, not sacrifice means. And nothing could be clearer than what Paul tells us Christ said. You did not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings or burnt offerings or other offerings for sin, nor were you pleased with them, though they were required by the law of Moses. Hebrews 10 verse 8. Again, it appears that it was never God's intention to have animal sacrifice to him but in order to cater for the culture of the time where people offered sacrifices to please their gods, God replaced the idols with himself, but kept the sacrifices, since this is what the people knew at the time. And another concession God makes to cater for the culture of the ancient Far East is the provision of a human king to rule over his people. God initially sets up his people with him as their king and the judges to manage the day-to-day affairs of his people. But this was not good enough for the people, and they asked for a human king so they could be like all the other nations. And even though God's own people were rejecting him, 
God provides them with a king and even works with the human kings who ruled over his people. Further accommodations which God makes for his people can be found in the law of Moses. The Code of Hammurabi, which was published hundreds of years before the law of Moses, has many similarities to the law of Moses. Moses did not copy the Code of Hammurabi, but rather God, when he provided the inspired word to Moses, accommodated the culture of the times and allowed certain laws and regulations which the Israelites would have been familiar with to be part of his law. These cultural accommodations also explain the reference to monsters such as Leviathan and Behemoth in the Old Testament. It also explains why many of the depictions of God in the Old Testament have clear parallels with other ancient Near Eastern warrior deities. These cultural accommodations can explain why it appears as though God commands the Israelites to genocide. In several places in the Old Testament, God clearly indicates how he would like Israel to deal with their enemies and how they should go about occupying the promised land. In Hosea, we are told, But I will show love to the people of Judah. I will free them from their enemies, not with weapons and armies or horses and charioteers, but by my power as the Lord their God. Hosea 1 verse 6. In 2 Kings 6, Elisha dispatches of the Armenian army without anyone being killed. In fact, the king of Israel gave them a great feast before sending them home. And a long while before the Israelites violently invaded the promised land, God said, I will send the hornet ahead of you to drive out the Havites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites, but I will not drive them out in a single year because the land would become desolate and the wild animals would multiply and threaten you. I'll drive them out a little at a time until your population has increased enough to take possession of the land. Exodus 23 verses 28 through 30. And in Leviticus we're told that God will drive the Canaanites out of the land and the land will vomit them out. God's original intention was for the Israelites to deal with their enemies peacefully and to slowly move the indigenous inhabitants of Canaan off the land so that the Israelites could eventually and peacefully occupy the land without having to commit genocide. But we know this did not happen. Why? In the ancient Near East, the culture was to acquire land through violence and genocide with the help of your warrior deity. The culturally conditioned heart-of-heart Israelites could not conceive of acquiring land peacefully. It is likely that they did not have sufficient faith and trust in their father to deliver the land to them without having them to draw their swords. It appears what God said to Moses was that he would give the Israelites the land and he, God, would remove the people from it. And what Moses' culturally conditioned heart heard was, go and violently attack the inhabitants of the land. We also need to have a look at some of the incidents where it appears that God acts violently. The most obvious one being the crucifixion of his son, Jesus. Even a cursory reading of the events surrounding the crucifixion of Jesus make it clear that the violence against the Son of God was perpetrated by man and not God. What God did do was not stop the evil and violence in men's hearts, which resulted in them killing his son. God did this by removing his protective power over his son, which is possibly why Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? 
This raises an interesting possibility. On the Mount of Olives, just before Jesus' arrest, he asked his father if he would take this cup away from him. This cup is often referred to be the cup of God's wrath or fury, based on the Old Testament usage of this metaphorical cup. By implication then, when God refers to his cup of fury or cup of wrath in the Old Testament, what it really means is that he's going to remove his protective power over the respective people or nations that he's referring to, and then letting the natural consequences of their sin become their punishment. This concept of sin being its own punishment is confirmed by God, where he says, your wickedness will bring its own punishment, Jeremiah 2 verse 19. The punishments which the nation of Israel faced were not inflicted by God, but were a consequence of the nation's own sin. God removed his protective power over them so that they could feel the results of their wickedness and be taught a lesson. A really good example of this is found in Chronicles. The nation of Israel had abandoned God, and God says through the prophet Shemaiah, this is what the Lord says, you have abandoned me, so I'm abandoning you to Shishak, 2 Chronicles 12 verse 5. This is not God actively attacking the nation of Israel, but rather it is exactly what the text says, merely his abandonment of the nation. And what comes next in the text is equally instructive. Then the leaders of Israel and the king humbled themselves and said, the Lord is right in doing this to us. When the Lord saw their change of heart, he gave this message to Shemaiah. Since the people have humbled themselves, I will not completely destroy them, and I will soon give them some relief. I will not use Shishak to pour out my anger on Jerusalem. 2 Chronicles 12 verses 6 and 7. Here scripture calls God's abandonment or removal of his protective power over Israel the pouring out of his anger. In Deuteronomy, Scripture equates God's anger to him abandoning the nation of Israel. The Lord said to Moses, After you are gone, these people will begin to worship foreign gods, the gods of the land where you are going. They will abandon me and break my covenant that I have made with them. Then my anger will blaze forth against them. I will abandon them, hiding my face from them, and they will be devoured. Terrible trouble will come down on them, and on that day, they will say, these disasters have come down on us because God is no longer among us. Deuteronomy 31, verses 16 and 17. This passage also equates Israel's punishment with God hiding his face from them, removing his protective power. The consequences of the nation's sin will be their punishment, and not God explicitly leashing out acts of violence against them. Even though the Old Testament text sometimes appears to read like God is unleashing his wrath with violence, these texts are more likely to reflect the culture of the ancient Near East, where at the time it was generally assumed that deities unleashed violent acts against those with whom the deity was displeased with. Psalm 7 shows both the ancient Far East culture narrative of a warrior deity, but also shows that the punishments are natural consequences of sin and not God's flaming arrows. If a person does not repent, God will sharpen his sword. He will bend and string his bow. He will prepare his deadly weapons and shoot flaming arrows. The wicked conceive evil. They are pregnant with trouble and give birth to lies. 
They dig a deep pit to trap others, then they fall into it themselves. The trouble they make for others backfires on them. The violence they plan falls on their own heads. Psalm 7 verses 12 through 16. God's wrath in these verses is equated to the natural consequences of a person's sin, and not God inflicting punishment on the people, other than not using his protective power to spare them from the natural outworkings of their own sin. Generally, whenever we read violent depictions of God in the Old Testament, we will also find in proximity passages which state that God will remove his presence, hide his face, or some imagery indicating that God will or has removed his protective power. In addition, we will find in proximity passages describing who or which nation is going to inflict the punishment on the people. The reason why God would remove his protective presence from people he loves is found in Hebrews. And have you forgotten the encouraging words God spoke to you as his children? He said, My child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline, And don't give up when he corrects you. For the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes each one he accepts as his child. As you endure this divine discipline, remember that God is treating you as his own children. Whoever heard of a child who is never disciplined by his father? Hebrews 12 verses 5 through 7. The discipline spoken of here is God allowing the results of our own sins to be felt, so that a lesson could be learned. Just like a parent might, in love, not constantly cover for his children's misdeeds so that they could learn a lesson. And just as a parent would not take any pleasure in seeing their children suffer as a consequence of their own misdeeds, I believe God takes no pleasure in seeing his children suffer as a result of their own sins. God our Father loves us and wants us to become the best versions of ourselves possible. And sometimes that takes us having to experience the pain of our own sins and poor decisions. The last issue I'll be looking at is the appearance of God inflicting violence through natural events, such as floods, earthquakes, plagues and the like. I noticed an interesting thing when looking at these incidents in Scripture. It does not appear as though it is God perpetrating these violent acts through natural events. In the incident in Numbers 16 with Korah, Dathan and Abiram and the Israelites that grumbled against Moses and Aaron, Paul says the destroyer or destroying angel acted against them. And this is the same word used by the Septuagint translators for the angel that killed the firstborn in Egypt. In both cases, the biblical authors are not giving specific attribution to God for these acts. It could very easily be argued that the angels were merely acting on God's instructions. However, I wonder if there is not something else going on here, and this destroying angel is not actually an angelic being, but a representation of a natural event which results in the death of people. It is possible that these acts of nature, such as earthquakes, floods, plagues, whatever happened to Sodom and Gomorrah, even the Great Flood, all of which appear to be acts of violence perpetrated by God, are natural events that would have occurred anyway, and God has merely removed his protective presence from the people. But what we also see in these events 
Is it God extending his protective presence to those he loves? For Noah, the firstborn Israelites in Egypt, Moses and Aaron, and the faithful Israelites in the wilderness, God wrapped his loving arms around them to protect them from these natural events. In conclusion, I think God made cultural accommodations for his people, which are reflected in the Old Testament. These accommodations were both in how his people acted and how they saw and spoke about their God. We should not be surprised by this, as we all accept the cultural accommodations Jesus made in respect of demons in the New Testament. These accommodations were made by God the Father and Jesus his Son, as the people were not ready to accept the truth. Their hearts were hard. Forcing the truth on the people would have resulted in God losing them. And because of God's love, he embarked on a long, slow journey to reveal his true nature to a stubborn and rebellious people. I hope this discussion has been thought-provoking. The arguments may not be able to explain every appearance of violence by God in Scripture. But if we hold to the view that Jesus is the very character of God and showed us a way of love, peace and reconciliation, then there must be an explanation for the apparent contradiction between the Old Testament and the New Testament God. We just need to find it. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed the message today. You've been listening to Mark Strachan, and for more, you can visit pressonjournal.org.